You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. I'm your host, David Frizzell, and in this episode, I'm talking to Vanessa McCamley. Vanessa believes that we can use neuroscience to rewire our brain for success. By understanding our brain, we can successfully make behavioral changes that will result in a more purposeful, less stressful life. So what is neuroscience and how can everyday folk like you and me tap into its wonders to live happier, healthier, more fulfilled lives? Well, you guessed it. Vanessa's right here to tell us all about it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Vanessa McCamley. Vanessa McCamley, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you for having me. Hey, Vanessa, great book, Rewire for Success, an easy guide to understanding neuroscience to improve choices for work, life, and well-being. What a topic. It, it really is one of those topics that we hear a little bit about, and every time I come across it, I just want to know more. I just have this intuitive understanding that there's so much within the neuroscience space that can help all of us, whether it's in our private life, in our work, in whatever we want to do and understanding ourselves and, and the way our brain is connected and, and how our brain helps shape our behaviors. So I'm really excited to have you on the Team Guru podcast tonight. Now, let's get started with the basics, Vanessa. What is neuroscience and why is it that I've been hearing so much about it over the past decade or so? Yeah, well, neuroscience explains the behavior in terms of the activities of the brain and how the brain marshals its billions of individual nerve cells to produce behavior and how these cells are influenced by the environment. We're learning more about the brain in the last 10 to 15 years compared to what we knew in the previous 400 plus years beforehand. It is incredible, David, and it's due to technology. Technology is helping us to achieve this through tracking blood flow, through things like fMRI and EEG scans. So knowing how people function and think can really transform business results. How? Through the field of neuroleadership and performance. So these areas focus on enhancing our decision-making capability, problem-solving and innovating thinking capability how we deal with emotions and regulating those and renewal, also including collaborating, influencing and engaging. And the fourth one is really about our ability to adapt and change. And that's what we do at Link Success. We provide really the essential bridge between what CEOs and C-level executives want and effectively executing their vision through their people by bridging the gap between the neuroscience academia and its benefits to the corporate world, and particularly how to actually apply it. Hey, yeah, you know, one thing that I've I've read about and and glossed over a few times is the idea of fMRI. But it wasn't until I read your book that I understood the fMRI, and I can't remember what it stands for, is about taking in our MRI scans while people are doing something and experiencing something, and therefore we can see the movements of the brain and the different parts of the brain that that access memories and make decisions and all of that kind of stuff. Tell me a little bit more about that. That is a, a fascinating little world. It is amazing. And again, this is what we're talking about. Technology has really advanced and it really floats my 
really floats my boat because I come from working in technology for over 20 odd years and I love seeing the advancements. And when it comes to saying, for example, like you mentioned, um, tracking what people are doing, for example, there are two key things that really basically unite the left and the right brain hemispheres of the brain, and that is music. And the second one is language. So under an fMRI, when someone's actually playing music, so reading, playing music, they can actually track and see the brain and it lights up like fireworks. It's one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. It sort of looks like the harbour, the Sydney Harbour Bridge when the fireworks are going off on New Year's Eve. That's what it looks like um, looking at your brain while someone is playing playing music. And language is the second one that does that as well, really connects both the left and the right side of the brain. Language is the interesting one there. And I can imagine music, you know, especially on something like New Year's Eve, you can imagine the best night you've ever had and, you know, the music was just right and you were loving it. And you can imagine your brain almost dancing along with it. And language can be the same, I guess. Sometimes we can be really stimulated by language and you can imagine your your brain dancing along to magnificent words and and beautifully articulated thoughts. But the other thing about language is we spend all day sharing it. So there must be some times where language isn't lighting my brain up and maybe not even connecting the left and the right hemisphere. It's just par for the course, just part of what I do every day. You know, every use of language is not a dance. No, and I think with being multilingual, it's because you're using different parts of the brain, right? Different parts. So you're exercising not just your everyday language that is in your habit center, but when you're speaking different languages, like for example, on the weekend, we caught up with really good friends and they were teaching us how to speak some Mandarin. Well, it really did mm. my brain in. Mm. It was doing a Literally. doozy dance. Yeah. It was lighting up like the Harbour Bridge. <laughs> and it was lighting up going, yeah, I'm finding this really, really challenging. And for example, another thing that I do is I share in my book that I am known as the Zumba Queen. You do. (laughs) And I love dancing and I love the South American music. In particular, I love salsa. And what that does to my brain, it lights it up in different parts of my brain because I'm both got obviously the movement and the sound and the rhythm of, of the music. But for people who, who are not familiar with it or are doing it for the first time in our Zumba class, they find it really, really cognitively taxing. When you're learning anything new, it always is because, again, you, it's such a combination that you're using both the left and the right side of the brain to coordinate not only the rhythm but also the coordination. Yeah, the fMRI stuff, fascinating, and, and the discoveries it's led to. Hey, Vanessa, tell me about neuroplasticity. It's, a, it's an idea I'm really drawn to. You know, one, one of the things that I do a fair bit of is things like MB, MBTI profiling, Myers-Briggs profiling. And, you know, when you do your Myers-Briggs accreditation, I don't know if you've ever done it, they kind of tell you that, that Myers and Briggs, one of them, I can't remember which one, said that if you could accurately assess a three-year-old, you know, as to whether they're an introvert, extrovert, a thinker or a feeler, an intuitive or a sensory, et cetera, then really their personality type won't change through their life. Their learned behaviors will change, but their inherent type will not. But I think that's been challenged by the discovery of neuroplasticity. And tell us what that is and why the idea of neuroplasticity might challenge the idea that 
part of our inherent type is hard baked into us. Mm. So one of neuroscience's most significant discovery is this neuroplasticity. And even though neuroplasticity has been around for hundreds of years. What, the understanding of it? Well, neuroplasticity has been around for a long time, but not to the depth of what we have discovered in the last 10 to 15 years. So the brain, just to explain what neuroplasticity is, it's the brain's ability to adapt, just like malleable soft plastic can change shape. So how does it work? Think of your brain like a dynamic power grid with billions of neural pathways of roads lighting up every time you think, feel, or do something. Some of these roads are well-traveled. These are our habits. It's sort of a bit like I mentioned to you earlier, David, is that I have a 17-year-old son and he is learning to drive, which my husband's mainly doing the training and the coaching on that one. (laughs) For him, he turned around to my husband and I recently and said, how do you drive the car and talk and listen to music and drink and have something to eat and do all those things when you drive. He said, I am totally exhausted by just concentrating what's going on in front of me. And I said, it's a new highway. Exactly. Right. And so for him, because it's in our habit center, because we've done it over and over and over and over again. And it's just like if anyone listening to us has got young children and teaching them how to clean their teeth. (laughs) And I know for my son, took a lot longer than I expected to have five-star cleaning. And we used to have to have goals and rewards <laughs> and dentist checks that have rewards <laughs> with those for five-star cleaning because it's something you've got to do over and over and over again to the point where you don't have to think about it. Where for us as adults, we could pretty much in the morning brush our teeth and we'll be planning our day. And we're actually not really thinking about how we're brushing our teeth because it's in an automatic behavior. Same with us driving a car. So every time we think in a certain way, practice a particular way of doing something or feel a specific emotion, we strengthen these neural roads. And it becomes easier for our brain to travel them, as I said, the more that we do it over and over and over again. It's that repetition pattern that we need when embedding a new behavior. And this habit center, this really saves neural energy. So once it becomes a habit, and I normally talk about that a habit takes, generally when speaking, when we're dealing with behavioral habits, around 90 days. Now people and my clients can do that. Some of them have done it less than that, around 60 days. But I find that to really make sure that we've got it embedded and that it becomes part of the subconscious, it takes at least 60 sorry, 90 days, and sometimes it will take longer than that, depending on how hardwired some of your other behaviours are. You know, that that reminds me, I can't remember if it was just a Queensland campaign or if it was nationwide about healthy habits. There was a campaign that said, don't stop it, swap it. Do you remember that campaign or was that just a Queensland thing? The idea was that instead of just telling you to stop eating junk food, for example, they would say, swap it for an apple. And they were trying to get you to create a new neuro pathway rather than just shut down an old habit, you know, create a new one instead. And I thought that was really clever. You know, they had lots of examples, like instead of sitting on the couch and watching TV, swap it for a walk or instead of, um, you know, catching the bus all the way to work, swap it for walking part of the way to work. 
And I thought that was really clever use of that that concept of having to create those new neuro pathways that neuroplasticity teaches us about. So I, I think that's a really fascinating discovery. Hey, Vanessa, why now? Why did you sit down and write your book, Rewire for Success? What did you want to do? What did you want to achieve achieve with it? What drove you to this point in your career? COVID. Yeah, <laughs> COVID. Gave you the time. It's amazing how many people have said that. There's a lot of COVID books floating around. Yeah, so I wanted to write the book probably the year before in 2019. And I had the idea and I had the plan, but I really couldn't take my foot off the pedal with my business at the time. And I still had it on my my life list of things that I wanted to do was to write the book. And then when COVID hit, and to be honest, that whole fight, flight, freeze response that I talk about from a threat perspective, I'm normally probably around a 75% fight. So problem solution is normally my tactic. (laughs) There's a problem, I'll come up with a solution, no problem. (laughs) But for whatever reason, for me this time round, and I actually know the reason, I'll share it in a moment. But for me, I was actually in freeze, which was very, very rare. When COVID hit, I was in denial. And then I went into resistant, which is I'm talking through the change curve here. And it took me a little bit to get to exploration to go, well, what are my options and and what can I sink my teeth into? And so my girlfriend, who's in business for herself in a totally different line of business, we're exercising in the park. She's normally my gym partner, but when we were only exercising in pairs, we were talking and she was also struggling as well with her business into coming up with plans and and how to bounce back and get into that exploration. So we both agreed to set a goal, something that we wanted to achieve that was positive, that was going to make a difference in the lives of others, and that we can say through COVID, we actually did something and made a positive difference in the world. And, And for me, Rewire for Success was that. So I started writing it in May 2020, and then launched it in September, October last year. So wanting to do something useful with your time through COVID, wanting to make a positive impact on people's life. Hey, what was your friend's goal, your your exercise buddy? Hers was really about personal growth and really taking her business to that next level. And she actually ended up making a decision to step away from the partners that she had in her business and, and go... <laughs> You would think that normally you would want to stay with what you know, but she actually took a bigger goal and a, and a bigger leap of faith, which was not easy for her. There was a lot of fear, uncertainty and doubts there, but she knew that this was the time to make a change and her business has grown tenfold since. Ooh, I was going to ask you who won. So is your <laughs> book a better success than her business growing tenfold? Who's the winner here? just different goals, right? <laughs> I'm only joking. Different goals. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of it in that in that light, and neither has she is either. I'd like you, you should raise it next time you're, you're running around the park together. <laughs> Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. All right, Vanessa, so if our goal is to live a happy, healthy, and productive life, something that makes us feel fulfilled, you work with a lot of people, you have a lot of clients, you've written a book about this, you've done a lot of thinking about this, 
When you work with people, what are the common three to five traps that people fall into? You pick a number, tell me the the really common one. And more importantly, though, tell me how an understanding of neuroscience can help us to make positive change. I would say my top one would be not having a clear purpose. And I know people throw that around quite a bit about purpose and knowing what your why is, but can I tell you, it is absolutely crucial. I have a father who is 86 years of age. You write very fondly about him in your book. I do write very fondly about my dad. He is my hero. He is one of the most amazing people I have ever met, and that's because he can always problem solve no matter what obstacle he faces. And he just has this most amazing ability to see the bright side out of any situation. (laughs) And we have the most amazing debates and discussions. And he has this curiosity about life and about people that's just amazing. And he still has it at 86 years of age. And he is probably from a biological perspective, at least 20 years younger. And I think a really few core ingredients is he's always had a purpose. He still has a purpose now at 86 years of age. He still works, not full-time. He still works and tinkers because he loves helping people and it's physical type of work that he does, so totally different to what I do. And he just really makes the most of every single day, really, really makes the most of it. And his purpose is really making sure that he provides and looks after my mum. But he's always had a purpose throughout his entire life. And it really got me thinking, and I don't know if you have come across the Blue Zones documentary. The Blue Zones look at people who, it's around the millennials who live to 100 plus, but still living really active, healthy lifestyles around the world. And they found that there are these key zones and key places in the world. But some of the essence is this purpose, that they have a purpose, they're still adding value to their community or their family or their loved ones. They're still active in connecting, connection, adding value, having purpose. So just to clarify, people who were born around the turn of the century, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, they're millennials. So they're they're either around 100 years of age who are still living healthy, active lives, and they're still contributing to their community in some shape or form. So purpose, okay. So, purpose, so not having purpose a purpose is number one. Yeah, you know, and not having a purpose is one of the traps that people fall into. Give me a couple more. But can I just elaborate? So people who don't have purpose tend to then flounder. And so what that means is that in my experience in a day-to-day working and coaching people is that those who don't have a clear purpose, then they just go with where other people who are either they look up to or people that they're working for and they just go and take on other people's goals and objectives. But they flounder because I have someone, for example, that I'm working with now who said at their age now, which is around 50, saying it's the first time in their life that they're actually determining what their purpose is and what they want out of life at this age. They feel like they've been serving people all their life And now they actually want to actually set a clear goal and actually achieve it for themselves and to be really focused on it for themselves. Better in midlife to discover that than never. Absolutely. But it's actually quite common that people have served other people and have taken on different paths or made decisions that maybe they wouldn't if they had a clear goal and objective for themselves. 
Yeah. The second one would be about what I write about and talk a lot about is the task epidemic. So where we are at the moment is that we tend to be doing, we're very action orientated. We tend to jump into things without really clearly understanding the why and the purpose and how what we're doing. What are those outcomes and how do those outcomes play into the why and the purpose of the organisation or to the team? And how do I play a role and how do I fit within that? And I think that's really important. We tend to be very reactive and I think being more proactive where we spend our time and energy is absolutely key. Yeah, I can see that one. And I would say social connection would be the third one because obviously over the last two years, I think that's been quite impacted. And again, technology has been brilliant, but it's still not the same as seeing people face to face. But it's about making sure, and some people are struggling with that more than others. So making sure that we make an effort around the social connection to really understand people, even if we're using technology, but asking the right questions so that we are connecting and that we are checking in with people that we care about, whether they're in our team or in another team, to show that genuine empathy, I think is really, really important. You know, I I can't remember the name and I'm I'm kicking myself for it, but there's a the longest study ever conducted about people. It's a bit like the seven up study, but it was it's been done by an organization run through Harvard. And I, I heard him speak the other day and he's an incredibly impressive guy. And um I think he's the fourth director of this study. And he is unequivocal about the fact that social connections are one of the best tells as to whether you're going to live a long and happy and healthy life. It's a better indicator at 80 of how healthy you are. Your your indicator at 50 about how healthy your relationships is more powerful than the state of your heart and your physical health about how long you'll live and how happily you'll live. The idea of social connections, we get that intuitively, but I think hearing you talk about it and hearing the other people talk about it just puts a really fine point on on it, just how important social connections are. And, and perhaps through COVID, we all got the opportunity to reflect on that. You know, one of the things we hear very commonly in the workplace right now is that, yeah, we, we could all make it work through Zoom and Skype and Teams and, and it worked and we kept businesses ticking over, but we miss that being in the room together. There's something missing about that. And that's very true for getting work done and connecting with our work colleagues, but it's even truer for people who are actually important to us as human beings in our life. The idea of social connection Hey, look, Vanessa, they're great. They're very clear. I asked you about the three common traps people fall into, and you said number one was not having a clear purpose in life. Number two was falling into the trap of being task-orientated or or the task epidemic. And number three was about not fostering fantastic social connections. They're really nice ones. Now, Vanessa, I know because you warned me that you've got a couple of questions for me, which I'm more than happy to answer. I don't normally get questions, so I'm a bit excited (laughs) to be on the other side of it um, because I've got one more question for you. And and that is for everything that you've spoken about, everything that you've written about and the work that you do, I want you to leave us with your top three tips for people who want to make neuroscience and an understanding of their brain work for them and the choices that they make. But before I ask you that question, maybe you want to hit me with your questions. Sure. I have a question for you. You mentioned to me 
in email that you have been reading my book, Rewire for Success. And I would love to hear what were some of your favorite tips or takeaways. I look, and I'm lucky because I have been taking notes. As I told you before we hit record, your book taught me that I can import a PDF to my Kindle, which is exciting discovery for me. And it's embarrassing that I didn't already know that. And so I've been able to highlight stuff along the way. Look, one of the things that I found really, really interesting, and I'm just trying to find it now, ah, yeah, is what we understand is that a threat to one's status, when a threat to one's status is experienced, the brain is response is acute, like physical pain. And I find that really interesting as someone who works in businesses as a change leader, someone who who structures and plans, manages and leads change, the understanding that for our brain, taking someone's status away is like inflicting physical pain. That's a really powerful message for me. You know, think about any large transformation in an organization and and in this day and age, it inevitably involves something like a new system, a new system in which we do our work. And someone pointed out to me a number of years ago, I was working on a project, we were just simply replacing a system. And of course, it was bigger than Ben-Hur. And someone pointed out to me very explicitly, it's like, hey, there are some people in our business who are experts in the old system. This is their currency. When someone new starts, they're the ones who sit down and train them. And we're taking that away from them. And we have to take it away because we have to upgrade our system. But just remember that you're taking away someone's status. And that has always stood out to me as a, as a very important lesson to remember that change is personal. And I had a wonderful guest on the podcast recently, Campbell McPherson, who has five truths about change. And one of them is that change is personal. And this just puts a much even finer point on it. The idea of when you take away someone's status through whether it's a family, a social or an organizational change, that can hurt them in the same way as breaking their toe or or doing their knee or or dislocating their shoulder can hurt them. And I found that really interesting. Did I interpret that correctly from the book, Vanessa? Yeah, absolutely. And I just had someone this afternoon in a coaching session that is exactly experienced that, has worked really, really hard for this organisation and feels like their status has been taken away. They've moved their people from them. They have no one in their team anymore and they feel like their own island and they don't feel supported and they're in a world of pain. Mm, and they're, they're actually physically in pain. And the difference between, so this is what's really interesting and you might have seen this in the book as well, David, is that physical pain and social pain are in the same area that actually highlight within the brain. So same region, brain region. But the thing is, social pain actually hurts more than physical pain. And that relates back to that research that you were just talking about, which I also refer to research very similar in my book as well around depending on how you connect with people, which I was just talking about, even the blue zone, people who are living millennials, healthy millennials who are still adding value to their community is that it's really important that they feel like they're part of something, right? That it's it's more than just themselves, that they're actually serving and they're part of something bigger than themselves. But feeling, making sure that they feel nurtured, love and very connected, I think is really, really key. So that was tip number one from you, okay? 
which is around status. What was your second? And on the side, of course, I've looked up the name of that start that Harvard study. And uh, psychiatrist Dr. Robert Wallinger is the current director, and he has been for quite some time. And it is called the Harvard Study of Adult Development. And if you can ever get your hands on a YouTube clip or anything related to that study, it's fascinating. And it's a minefield for people like you and me, Vanessa, who are interested in the way humans work and, and what success can look like in life. Hey, um, my other tip has a very similar theme. It centers around change, and it's because I'm interested in change from a professional point of view, but also a personal point of view. Life is change. Small changes, big changes, all through our life, every day, every year, in every phase of our life. And and one of the things that I really believe and that many wise people talk about is people who are good at change are happy and healthy and feel fulfilled in life. And in your book, I learned that our brain works and it and it works through a shortcut to decide if a reward is significant enough to warrant the energy that our, our energy-hungry brain needs to actually change. So our brain, at a subconscious level sometimes, is deciding, is it worth it for me? And that's why it's really important in organizations. If we're initiating change, if we're leading change, we've got to sell it to the individual. All change is personal because everyone who's sitting in that room, everyone in that organization, that team, that department is sitting there thinking, whether consciously or subconsciously, is this change worth it for me? And if you're selling greater profit for the organization and shareholders, if you're selling growth and all sorts of stuff that doesn't relate to me individually, if you're not selling it to how it's going to benefit me as a person, then I'm not buying in. And my brain is probably going to decide that the effort it will take for me to make this change is not worth it. I found that really, really interesting. And I think that's really a topic at the moment with we see level decision makers looking at how to protect their top talent. It's really important. We're talking about knowing what the why is, but what's also very important is how do your people fit in with that why, which is what I call the envision. So how it's not just what's the business purpose, but how do your people map to that and how do they fit in and add value to that? And I think that's missing missing a lot from a number of organizations that I've come across. Absolutely. All right. You asked me for three. I'm locked and loaded with my third. I love this because it confirms what I'd already do, already learned from that Harvard study of, of humans, human development or adult development. And this is, and this is a quote from your book. The more connected people feel with their family, friends, and communities, the longer they live in comparison to individuals who have the least connection. Isn't that amazing? Not only will you enjoy life more along the way with better connections with people you care about, you'll live longer doing it. Uh, there's no better advertisement for working really hard on relationships and, and being the best husband, wife, son, daughter, mother, father, auntie, uncle, friend, neighbor that you can be because it will make you happier through life and you'll actually live longer. I think that's amazing. And there's there's no greater case for that. Hey, we talk about our brain deciding whether it's worth something, investing in relationships, pump that into the, the equation, into the algorithm and tell it that you'll be happier and you'll live longer. That's a That's a pretty good outcome. Yeah, absolutely. So back over to your last question. All right. So someone has listened to you today. They're going to 
race out and buy your book. They're going to jump on your website and read your blogs and all that stuff. They've bought into the idea of neuroplasticity, neuroscience being a, a really valuable thing in their life and their life choices. What are the three top tips you can leave us with so that we can remember these really valuable concepts? It would come down to the food framework, which is what the book is based on, which is how do you fuel your brain with the right ingredients? So talking about diet, sleep, exercise, mindfulness, how do you rest and recovery? Because we're living in an instant world of immediacy. We're living on a diet (laughs) of action. And so we're constantly go, 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 go all the time. And we really need to get the right balance with fueling the brain so that we actually have downtime so that we can recover. If we're constantly go, 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 we'll have nothing left. It's a bit like your brain can be compared to like a mobile phone. So David, with your phone, if you have lots of apps open, what what can happen? It goes slow. Yeah. What else can it do? I don't know. I think going slow is annoying enough. I guess it can probably <laughs> overheat. So I don't know. Never really experienced that. I don't, know. I don't know. This is a test that I can't. I can't pass. I think. What about sometimes you might have to put it on charge. It runs oh, out of it runs batteries. out of batteries. You're absolutely right. What a thought. And I did read. I read that in your book. I remember reading that now. What a goose. And I only read it this morning. <laughs> but we are. We are speaking in the evening. So mm, when do you exactly. do your best thinking? Oh, in the morning. Are you a morning? Oh, look, and, and I was thinking about this when you were talking earlier. People who know me will be sick of hearing it. I've got a New Year's resolution this year, Vanessa, up at five every morning to work on a personal project, which is to do with my podcast and cataloging all the content. But it is by far the time that I do my best work. And I'm wondering through that 90-day neuroplasticity, new highway development in my brain, when getting up at five will feel really natural and normal to me. I think I must be pretty close. I think I've probably been doing it for six or seven weeks now, so I must be getting there. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. And is it getting easier that you're finding? Well, it it was never hard, to be honest, because it was exciting even at the start. You know, the idea of of finding, you know, I essentially have two more hours in the day to do cool stuff. What has gotten easier is going to sleep at night. I don't know about you, but I know that if I have to get up at five in the morning or some early time, it actually puts a bit of pressure on the other end, getting to sleep, because you you know, you're lying there thinking, Oh, I've got to get to sleep, gotta get to sleep. But that's something that's gotten much easier because I'm just tired. And I I made the decision early that even if I had a really terrible night's sleep, you know, I had trouble getting to sleep because I was feeling the pressure of waking up early, I would still wake up early because I figured it would sort itself out in the wash. You know, if I'm tired. I'll have it'll be easier for me to go to sleep. And that's exactly how it's worked out. So that that difficulty I had in the rare occurrences of getting up early, getting to sleep is, is gone because it's a habit now and I've had enough tired days that that it's played out that way. So yeah, it's getting easier. Oh, that's great. And that's what happens. As time ticks on within that 90 days, it should get easier and easier and easier to the point where you're automatically waking up yeah. without the alarm waking you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think I'm I think I'm getting very close, but it, it was never hard because it was so rewarding. You know, it going back to one of your first points, it I it had such a clear purpose. And you know, one thing I've learned about myself this year Vanessa is that when you wake up at 5 in the morning to do something productive, you don't procrastinate. Because you think I'm not waking up at 5 in the morning to miss, mess around in my desk and tidy things up and move this and move that. You know, all those classic procrastination things. Check my email, have a look at Twitter read the news for a while. I don't do any of that 
because I have committed to getting up at 5.30 in the morning, which is early enough. So I'm going to make the most of it. It's so incredibly productive. Yeah, and empowering mm. by the sound of that. Yeah, yeah. My, my wife commented the first few times she got up and saw me, she said, you just, you just look so happy sitting there, you know, at your desk doing stuff at that crazy hour. Which is great. So the, that was fuel your brain with the right ingredients, which included a lot of the ingredients you just shared with us, right? Getting the sleep right, the fuel right, diet-wise, also exercise, all of those things are really, really important with fueling the brain. The second one is organising your daily structure based on when you do your best thinking, which is what we just talked about, which was for you getting up earlier in the morning, but also protecting that time so that we're not distracted by the things that you talked about, which was emails, reading the news, social media, all of those things. So when you know that that's where you do your best thinking time, protect it. But also if you're working within a team, so for you, for example, at 5.30, maybe maybe you're not having to deal with anybody else in your world at that time in the mm, morning. No, that's, which- one, that's one of the great things. <laughs> There's no one pestering me. But just for example, just say that 10 to 12 o'clock is your best time of day. It's about communicating that to your team members and people, your key stakeholders who you're working with to go, if I'm showing that I'm not connected or not online, that's because I'm really doing my deep thinking work. But if there is an emergency and you really need me, this is the best way to contact me. So it's really about organizing your daily structure and when you do your best thinking and protecting it against distractions and communicating it effectively with those that you work with. The third one is about overcoming obstacles with the brain in mind, and it's really priming the brain for the unknown. So the brain seeks certainty. And so it's and it's a protection mechanism, a survival mechanism. So it's really important that we prime the brain, just like we do with a fire drill, is that we know what steps we need to take if there is a fire. How many of those have you had to do in your lifetime, David, particularly when you when you're a when you're a teacher, I could imagine. (laughs) So it's really important to prime the brain to actually think about those that are known and unknown. So for a lot of my clients, I get them to put time in their diary for the unknown so that you haven't got back-to-back meetings or back-to-back tasks for the whole day. And when something does arise, then you go, well, I've got nothing left in the tank to deal with that. So, for example, another client of mine's doing that really well, has some time in the morning, has some time in the afternoon, ring-fenced for obstacles, and they're finding that they're so much more productive. They're also communicating to their team. So if people need a hand or, or need them for something, that's the time to approach them. And the fourth one is really around drive the right behaviours, mindsets, and passion for achieving your desired outcomes, which comes to what we were talking about today really articulating the why and really being able to have a whole plan around knowing what your why is, what's your purpose, breaking it down into small bite size chunk and celebrate those wins, identify who you're going to celebrate them with because it's not so much about the destination, it's the journey in how you're getting there and how you celebrate that and tapping into the reward circuitry within the brain, which is so powerful, which is known as dopamine, which is the happy drug within our brain. And so the more dopamine we can get into our brain, the more likely we're going to stay on path, no matter if we're facing difficult obstacles, but we will have the grit and determination 
as long as we can have little milestones along the way that we can celebrate the wins, it makes a huge difference. That is fantastic stuff, Vanessa. What a wonderful place for us to finish our chat. Vanessa McCamley, thank you so much for joining me on the Team Guru podcast. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. And that was Vanessa McCamley. I love talking about the whole discipline of neuroscience. It's fascinating. Vanessa's top tips remember her food model. F is for fueling your brain to ensure you give it the right ingredients to thrive. The first O is for organizing your daily structure around when you do your best thinking and protect that time. The second O is for overcoming obstacles with the brain in mind. Prime your brain for known and unknown challenges. Hurdles will appear in your path. Be prepared to clear them. And D is for drive the right behaviors. Create a mindset for achieving your passions. As always, I'll share these tips and the other lessons I took from my conversation with Vanessa on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Bye for now.